Well, we are in chapter 20 of 1 Samuel uh, in the series called The King We Need. If you remember from last week, we decided we would take this in two parts. We didn't decide that. I decided that um, for clarity there. But we're going to be in the second part of that chapter this week in verses 12 through 42. So uh, it's been a really difficult chapter just in terms of getting the, the main point. So uh, it's been a struggle, if you will, to, to get some clarity. But hopefully the Lord will speak through that. So I'm going to read... Um, from verse 12 to 42. If you remember uh, Jonathan and David, the scene here is David is on the run from Saul. Jonathan is displaying a great loyalty to David. It really is a beautiful story of a friendship, but that's not just the point of the passage. We learned about God's covenant love displayed throughout his steadfast covenant, Hesed love. Say that again, Hesed. Hesed love of God. And so we'll see that in the story as well. But before we read this from the Bible, if you're new here, this is an affirmation we say as a people of God, a community that believes in the Bible and the Spirit. Uh, it's not Scripture, but it is about Scripture. And so we, we say it and try not to make it an autopilot thing, really as a prayer that would center us to the Word of God. Let's say it together. Our pursuit is by the power of the Holy Spirit to be a biblically functioning community. We will not shy away from the word of God. No matter how painful it is to our soul or how countercultural it is to our souls, we will follow the king into eternity. Let me read this from verse 12 through 42, a little bit longer text, but really um, worthwhile one. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord of God of Israel be... Witness, when I have sounded out my father, who is Saul, about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed towards David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father." If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand and remain by the, beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy saying, Go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on this side of you. Take them, then you are to come. For as the Lord lives, it is safe for you and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat as at other times, and on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty." Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not 
clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know... know Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither shall surely nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because of his father, because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to the boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy And said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. I'd ask you to just pray that God would quiet your hearts, open your minds, your ears to his word, You pray that, and I will pray for us collectively as we come now to God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. I pray now that you would open our minds and hearts to what you have for us, that your word would speak, and that your people would listen. And Father, if there is one who does not know you today, that would be drawn to salvation in Jesus. And it is in his name that we pray, and all God's people said... If you remember last week, we looked at a verse in the New Testament as kind of a launch pad for our time together in chapter 20 as we uh, kind of need a framework of, of, through this text. And David, uh, on his faith journey and all the Old Testament narratives, like we said last week, uh, have purpose for us. So we looked at Romans 15.4 again, and that'll be on the screen for you for whatever was written in former days, like this text here, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Last week, we looked at endurance, that word, and said that we'd be looking at two more words, encouragement and hope. 
that all these things are written for our instruction, just like David, who experienced a life like ours in hardship, maybe not us being chased by a, a crazy, angered king, but we have hardship and we need endurance and faith. And we also need encouragement and hope. Encouragement for all that lies ahead and hope for all that we need in life. And so as we looked at endurance through the hard things last week and we understood that David was able to endure because of the steadfast love of God, in the same way we'll continue to look to the story and how David also received encouragement and hope because of the covenant faithful love of God. And so those two words, encouragement and hope, which will be building blocks in our points for today, and I'll put them up on the screen, the three points from building blocks of encouragement to hope. Here they are. The first one is this, and we'll, we'll take them one at a time. Encouragement comes from the faithfulness of the steadfast covenant love. The faithfulness of the steadfast covenant love calls for a costly commitment to the kingdom and finally, the costly commitment to the kingdom brings about the true covenant peace and hope in the midst of chaos. You'll see that hope and peace here I've linked together for as often as the case when you are peaceful, you are generally more hopeful, right? And when you are hopeful, this kind of transcends you or lifts you out of the chaos into a state of peace because you know things will be better. We've said this before, kind of an until soon becomes now kind of better. Many of our situations we want out of, this kind of hopefulness and peace lifts you towards a confidence that God will make a way. And so we'll use those three points as our guide. The first one, this encouragement comes from the faithfulness. I want to emphasize that word of the steadfast covenant love. Now, verses 12 through 17 are interesting in this passage as we started. We, of course, looked at 1 through 11 last week, but verses 12 through 17 don't really have to be in the narrative for the story to continue on. They're kind of unusual in that way. And some liberal scholars will say, oh, this passage was added later by different sources, but that's not the case. That's what liberal scholars do. God's word is always intentional because it is, in fact, in the text, it must be important. And what we see here in this passage, these first few verses in 12 through 17, is Jonathan's unusual faithfulness. It's uncommon, in fact. It's almost abnormal or strange. And you say, well, why is it abnormal and strange for how Jonathan is treating David? Because he does something that is not normal. And you have to understand, and we'll get to this, he, he does something that is not a normal response for many of us that would maybe have found ourselves in his position. You see, backing up, Jonathan needs to carry out this plan that he devises because he really wants to know if his father is after David. We said last week he's a little naive to this. He's not quite sure he's as, his father is as angry and seeking David's life as much as David seems because Jonathan hasn't seen the attempts at David's life. We, the reader, see that in the story. Jonathan has not. And so he needs to see it for himself. And what he does is he swears an oath to David that if he doesn't tell him the true plot, then so it be to him kind of like that he may harm come to him, as it says in verse 13. So he swears this oath, and in verse 12, it says that, and Jonathan said to David, the Lord of God of Israel, be witness. Covenant agreements need witnesses. Jonathan doesn't look anywhere else but the Lord himself, that God be his witness. Serious stuff here. Jonathan is found swearing 
essentially an oath before God. Now, you know this in our culture, right? People say this all the time, I swear to God. People say that flippantly, as if it's some kind of just like thing referencing, look, I'm telling the truth or a promise. And we hear that kind of stuff all the time in our culture. This is not that. This is a serious covenant agreement that they had agreed to in 19. These two people coming before God and saying, the Lord is my witness. This pledge of faithfulness. This is serious to Jonathan and David. Entirely serious. Now, Jonathan in the story may have been hurt by David's suggestion earlier of disloyalty. Like, Jonathan, you don't understand. Your dad wants to kill me. But he knows David well. Jonathan knows David is in crisis mode. And understanding his position in hard circumstances, he realizes he needs encouragement and a reassurance of hope. And so what we see in this passage is Jonathan almost showing this great pastoral wisdom and care in his response to David through the whole account. And we said that last week. Jonathan foreshadows Christ in this way. And you can see his compassion and loyalty like that of Jesus Which is just a reminder, as we pause there, Jesus knows every need of ours. He has kindness and compassion like that. In your deepest moment of crisis, in your biggest moment of wonder with all the circumstances of life, God knows your very need. Jesus was remarkable in that, knowing exactly what we need in the moments. And so Jonathan devises his plan. We've covered this to know for sure that Saul does intend to kill David, David, and he then covenants to David that he will do what he said he would do. So what's the strange part about all of this, you ask? You have to remember that Jonathan is a prince. He's Saul's son, the next in line for the king. Never mind the fact that Samuel had told Saul, your kingdom will not last. And people simply don't do what Jonathan does in this position here. You don't simply hand over your rightful place at the throne to a rival. We would say this is, in our country, political nonsense to do that. If Jonathan were normal, he would dispose of David or set him up and betray him, as many did in the day, because Jonathan knows that David would be a threat to his family's kingdom. Instead, he switches roles with David, essentially, because he's truly faithfully seeking the kingdom of God first. What's more unusual, and we'll read this in a second, verses 14 through 16, is there, there will come a time when Jonathan, not David, you see the role reversal, will be a fugitive or be in need of great mercy. Reading verses 14 through 16, he says this, this statement, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. Do you see what Jonathan is doing here? May, if I'm still alive, because he knows when the new king David gets in place, the custom was to wipe out the entire family. And he says, spare me, essentially. Show me the steadfast love, because he belongs to Saul's family. He understands that Saul's punishment for his behaviors are just, and he should be wiped out from the Lord. But Jonathan essentially begs for mercy. Now, back in that day, you have to understand the culture of transition of power in kingship. When new kings were established, they literally wiped out the entire like, family from the, the previous king. 
Other cultures did this. They purged, if you will. They removed every trace of that kingdom in order that they wouldn't be a threat. And that's just what happened. And so Jonathan, knowing that, knowing when David gets his rightful place on the throne, he's begging him for mercy. Do you see the role reversal? Now he would be the one that would be in need. And he begs David, remember the steadfast love. Remember the covenant agreement that we make. Because he knows that that's going to be a part of it. And what you see here is the extreme faithfulness on the part of Jonathan. Jonathan has been faithful and shown David through covenant love in terms. He now asks him to reciprocate that if he is still found alive and do not cut him off the steadfast love to his house. And acknowledging whatever comes to Saul, his own father, would be just. Do you see the gospel and picture there? Recognition of unrighteousness and sin, and Jonathan recognizes his father's wickedness. Recognizing that punishment should come from the Lord's hand. Do you see the sacrifice and love and mercy? And this is a beautiful picture of the gospel in play here. This transaction, not transaction, this relationship between Jonathan and David here, displaying the beauty of the gospel and what Jesus would ultimately do for his people in taking that very punishment on himself. As we said last week, and for us to plead for God's mercy, and it is found here. Now, what is our faithfulness to God for those who know Jesus? It's our faith in Christ that saves us, right? It's no work of any of us. It's, should any boast, that's what it says in Ephesians 2. It is simply faith in Christ alone. Faith alone in Christ alone, by grace alone, that we are saved. But here's the thing about covenants. Even when we are faithless and sinful, and that's the beauty of the new covenant. God is still faithful even when we fail. In fact, that's the only way this thing would work. And so this role reversal, Jonathan and David, that you see here, when chapter 20 begins, Jonathan foreshadows Christ. And now we see David taking that on and showing mercy to Jonathan. The point, what brings us true encouragement in life as we carry on? It's the faithfulness of the covenant itself. That this thing will hold, that it's secure. To better understand this, you need to look ahead to Luke 22. You can flip there if you want. This is a beautiful passage uh, in the Gospels about Jesus. Remember this, Jesus is foretelling Peter's denial in Luke 22, 31. And I'll just read it real quick. He's reminding Peter that, listen, you're going to deny me. And Peter, of course, is like, I would never do that, Lord. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. But Jesus said, slow down there, Peter. My answer, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Peter, of course, being all about this faithful commitment to the Lord, said, Lord, Lord, I'll go to the death with you. There's no way I'll deny you. And we know Jesus says what eventually comes true. Peter, you will deny me, and not just once, but three times the fact that you know me. But did you see what Jesus said had earlier? Satan demanded us if you like we, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And then this strange, and when you have turned again, what is he talking about there? Peter's faith did fail. He, he demonstrated denial. 
Jesus, it wasn't that Jesus' prayer was ineffective. It was about highlighting the fact that even when Peter's faith failed and he was faithless, Jesus would still hold him, sustain him. Do you see it? That's the beauty of the covenant, the faithfulness with God himself. When we are, as a people are faithless, when we deny the Lord Jesus, when, when we turn again, Jesus is standing there. He has been to secure the covenant on our behalf. We don't always get it right, but God's love for us in Christ is faithful even when we aren't. And so you see that in that first point. It's the faithfulness of the steadfast covenant. Now, if you move on to verses 18 to 23, you see they devise, Jonathan devises this plan that he'll shoot these arrows, the Robin Hood kind of text, as I like to call it. He's going to shoot these arrows across the stone heap in this little plan. And if the arrows are to the side, then you can return safely. And if the arrows are beyond, then you know that Saul wishes him harm and that you have to leave. And so we'll skip ahead a little bit uh, as we come back to that when the actual plan is carried out. But I'll get to the second point here, the faithfulness of the steadfast covenant that we just saw Steadfast covenant love calls for a costly commitment to the kingdom. Verses 24 through 34 speak to this. This is the scene at which they've devised this plan at the king's table. And it's about to get pretty dicey. If you look at verse 24, David hid himself in the field. When the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. And of course, the king sat on his seat and other times, but Jonathan is there and David is not. Well, King Saul thought, well, that's a little strange, but he doesn't say anything about the first time. But it's the next day because he thought maybe he's sick, maybe he doesn't feel well. The next day he notices Saul's kind of tuning in to something's a little strange here. And he asks where he is. David or, and Jonathan have worked out. We looked at this last week. Jonathan has devised this lie to tell. We're saying that the scripture doesn't recommend lying. It just records it. And so Jonathan confronts Saul with that, and Saul just blows up. His anger, it says in verse 30, is kindled. It says to Jonathan, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. If you know what he's calling him there, we hear that phrase a lot in our culture. That's exactly what he's saying to him. He didn't misread that. And it's ironic here because he lashes out at Jonathan. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? Great irony here, right? He is questioning Jonathan's loyalty to him. Now it's ironic only because we know Saul's heart is wicked and Jonathan's is not. And he confronts him with this, and the irony is there that it is actually Saul who is wicked, accusing Jonathan of that, but he is really questioning his loyalty. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. You see, Jonathan is between David and his father now. And this is the first time you actually see Jonathan, who is relatively calm and kind, get enraged in this story. He becomes angry with his father, so, so mad, in fact, he leaves because he won't stand for it. His loyalty is towards David because he is the true king after God's own heart. We talked about this last week. There is a sense of loyalty that all of us will have to display towards Christ when it comes to him and truly following his kingdom. Even if this means putting Christ before your own family, 
It's a costly commitment there for Jonathan. He sees the wickedness flow out of Saul, and he remind, he's reminded of the commitment that he has, the loyalty, the covenant loyalty he has towards David, even above that of his own father, his own place in the kingdom. And Jonathan does this because he does one thing right. He seeks the kingdom of heaven first, above his own. We read that in Matthew 6.33, right? Seek first the kingdom of God. Now, if you know that Matthew passage in chapter 6, you know that the context in which that verse is written is about anxiety. Jesus says, Therefore, tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear. The Lord provides all those things. He takes care of the sparrows, the lilies of the field. In context, he's talking about anxiety. Now, why would that verse come in the context of anxiety? Why are we often anxious in life? Because our eyes are on the earth not on the kingdom of heaven. You and I often keep our eyes horizontal instead of vertical. When Colossians comes along, set your mind on things above. Jonathan here is found in this story having his mind set on things above. That's important as we'll get to our last point about the peace that he passes to David. Kingdoms of the world can be a distraction. This last year has proven that for many. It's Independence Day for crying out loud in our country, July 4th, our country right now. And we value freedom in our country. And it is good to be patriotic and it is good to support our military. It is good. It is a good, good thing that we live in a free country to celebrate that. But it is not ultimate. Not even ultimate most free and perfect country, not even, rather, the most free and perfect country can save us. If we had the best government, which is like the best thing in the White House that you could imagine, put the right people in there, of course, that would be people, I hope the church would choose people that would only proclaim the truth of God, preach the gospel, but no earthly human government can save. Not even a perfect administration that got all the tax laws right and all the health care laws right and all the immigration things and all this and all that, it still wouldn't bring about eternal salvation for people unless it was all people that served God alone in a theocracy. True life does not consist of securing the me and my own kingdom. It comes by reflecting God's covenant faithfulness to us in building us, the church, his people into a royal priesthood and holy nation. Friends, I'm going to say this. We are not Americans that are Christian. We are Christians who happen to live in America. Do we understand that? Don't forget that. And so there may be times where it costs us to live for the kingdom first, whatever that may be. Friends, family members, jobs, careers, loyalty matters. It's a costly commitment. And Jonathan displays it. It's transitioning to this last scene in the text, which Jonathan's plan is actually carried out. I said the Robin Hood scene with the arrows. And it's truly a beautiful picture of friendship, love, and loyalty. But what rises to the surface in all of this, and this is kind of where we'll land today to bring about our third point, what you see so clearly is peace that is displayed in the hope for David that you can trust in that he ends up trusting this third point, the costly commitment to the kingdom brings about true covenant peace and hope in the midst of chaos. Life is not easy. We talked about that last week. 
The same is true probably a week later. Hard circumstances face many of us. And you need to endure. You need to display that. And David will now learn from this plan that he is indeed a fugitive on the run. Saul's anger is kindled. And not only that, but he will have to leave everything he knows, including his friend who loved him as his own soul. This is heavy stuff. This is kind of a movie scene, if you will. And so Jonathan takes his boy onto the field. David is hiding near the side of the rock, and he shoots the three arrows. And you say, why three arrows? You remember the five stones thing? It's just three arrows, all right? So he shoots the three arrows, and he says, if they land to the side, then you'll know that the Lord It's safe. You can return if the arrows go beyond you. The little boy is clueless in this. He's done this thing probably thousands of times with Jonathan. Is like, go get the master's arrows. He's completely clueless. This is set up this way. And you see that Jonathan says there in the morning, Jonathan went out in the field and said to the boy, run and find the arrows I shoot. And as the boy ran, it says there in verse 36, he shot an arrow behind him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called, is not the arrow... Beyond you, communicating to David, you need to run. And so Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows, but the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew of the matter. Jonathan gives his weapons to the boy and said, go carry them back to the city. And then you see verse 41, which I hope you can see the heaviness of this verse. When I read this time and time again, it's a picture of earthly brokenness and hardship about the sorrows and heartache. As soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap And he fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. It's not just a narrative and a story. You can read that and know what's at stake here. Heavy circumstance of life, heartache, sorrow. You see in this verse, this is not how things are supposed to be for Jonathan and David. This is not how things are supposed to be in life. This was probably very confusing to David in this moment. And we talk about our journeys with, in our faith with God when life does not happen the way we thought. And here David is, who has been anointed as king, and now the king is threatening his life. His best friend, his most loyal ally, he will have to separate from him. And he falls on his face and they kissed one another and wept with one another and David weeping the most. Can you feel the heaviness and sorrow? The heartache. You think about John chapter 11, the heartache that caused Jesus to weep over Lazarus, right? When Mary and Martha experienced deep sadness. Jesus knew what was coming. But in that John eleven thirty five, 35, right? Shortest verse in the Bible, he says, Jesus wept because he had compassion an emotion over the sadness and brokenness of humanity. But then comes verse 42, and if you're paying attention, it sticks out in this passage like a sore thumb. Like, what is this? In this heaviness in the moment, this is what Jonathan's reply is to David. Go in peace. Do you see that? Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. Do you see that? In the heaviness of this moment, in the chaos that swirls around David's life, in the shot the arrow beyond, my father wants to kill you, and not just my father, but the whole army of Israel. Remember, Abner was present. 
He witnessed this whole thing. Saul's attempts for David's life had been private until that point. And now the whole army of Israel will pursue David. And all of this chaos will come at David. And all that circles around his life in hard circumstances, when the walls feel like they're crashing in. And Jonathan's words to him are this, go in peace. Huh? That's just not a typical response. Do you see it? Like, you better run. I hope you run fast. No. Go in peace. Why? Because of the covenant. It's a comfort to us, an encouragement. How could David possibly, a man on the run, go in peace? His life being sought after? Because of the covenant. You ever feel like the world is weighing you down and your whole life is out of order and it's just so discombobulated, you just don't know which way's up anymore and why is this happening and this and this and the state of our country and the words of Jesus to us today, peace. It is here we take Jesus' words that John 14 that were read by Kyla earlier. You know, we do pick those scriptures in advance to connect. She read this in verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That's what Jonathan spoke to David. Don't let your heart be troubled. Trust in the covenant, steadfast, hesed love of God. You know what brings us encouragement and hope and peace that passes all understanding? The faithfulness of the covenant love of God in Christ Jesus, that God is with us. That when Jesus left, he left the spirit, a helper, as a guaranteed deposit of things to come. Even when you stand in the middle of complete chaos, you can have peace. I've shared this before, but I feel like it's warranted again. Outside my window in my office over there, there's a small tree with a bird's nest in it, and often my eye will catch if there's a mama bird there with babies when it's raining hard outside in the storm, and I'll be reading or studying and praying and thinking about things, and and I watch this little mama bird sit calmly on her babies in the midst of a storm, and it's just another reminder. You can see this peace about this bird. It just knows It's protected and covered, and the rains will eventually stop. It's a beautiful picture of peace in the storms of life. But the Christian knows one better and ought to know one better. That bird, I, the bird and I don't like talk to each other. You like think I'm really wacky here. And I'm sure the bird doesn't think like this, like, well, what if the whole tree gets swept up by a tornado? Christians know better. What if it does? What if the whole earth collapses? What if the whole world goes to chaos? There is still peace for those in Christ. That's how it ought to be for us who know Jesus, peace. And we can have it freely because of him. So do you, I say, celebrate well the freedoms of this country today, that we can still worship in this place, that we can believe what we believe without persecution. But even when persecution comes, and it will come, It will be more chaotic as the time goes on. You can still have peace. I wonder if you know that peace that comes from Christ alone today. You see, Jesus said, and this is a perfect transition to the table today, Jesus said that he was 
himself peace, and he invited all towards him, all who were burdened and heavy laden, and he said, I will give you rest. And he offers that same peace for us today to all who come to him by faith. In fact, when he broke bread with the disciples and instituted the meal we are about to take together as believers, he said, this bloodshed represents the new, what? Covenant. So timely in our text today. A covenant now that by his death all men would have their sins paid for and be atoned for and be reconciled to God. As Romans 5 says, to have peace with God. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said, this is the new covenant, my blood. This is the agreement that you can bank on, that because I'm going to go to the cross and die for your sin, you can be reconciled to God and have peace with him. And even when your faith fails, mine will not. And he will hold us fast. And so think about that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, the covenant love of God in Christ Jesus. So if you don't know him today, I want to pray for you now that you place your faith in him and thereby have peace. To the rest, I say this, may we be encouraged by the faithfulness of the covenant. May we know the cost of following Jesus in the world. And may we experience his peace and therefore have hope because he has died for us so that we may live and invite the servers up. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are such a faithful God, a loving and gracious God, reminding us here of your covenant love and faithfulness, your steadfastness. And God, I pray for the one who is heavy laden and burdened. God, I pray for the one who has never trusted Christ by faith. Maybe their whole world is caving in right now. Maybe it's confusion. Maybe they, like David, feel like they're always running from something in this moment. God, that you would grab a hold of their heart and they would see clearly the picture of Jesus with his arms open wide, offering rest for all who come to him, who are burdened, heavy laden, that he will give rest that his burden is light that they would take their yoke upon him, signaling discipleship, signaling following him, surrender and submission and worship. And Father, may we all do that as we stay close to Jesus. And Father, if one confesses with their mouth and believes in their heart that Jesus is Lord, they can be saved. That we would be a people that repent from sin and seek you for forgiveness alone. And God, I pray for the one who would utter that prayer today that you would give them assurance of your grace and salvation for eternity. Your word also says that if we confess our sins, you are faithful to forgive, God. And so we can be secure and sure that you love us till the end. God, thank you for this beautiful story in the scriptures of Jonathan and David and Jonathan's loyalty as Christ has been loyal to us and for the commitment that they had the covenant displayed there as a reminder for us as we're about to take this meal of the covenant love you showed at the cross. God, this is a meal for your people who have you claimed by Christ's blood, a treasured possession, and I pray that we'd honor you and worship you. And so, Father, we thank you, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said.